starting a new series this morning to kind of get this going. I, I want to, when I was turning 30, a long, long time ago, very long time ago, I always try and I, I like that I'm getting gray because it disguises my age. A lot, I still run into people that say, you're a pastor of a church and what? So I'm getting gray now. I do look a little older, more distinguished. But when I turned 30, my uh, Tanya, my wife was working on a project for me. And she was having the kids kind of say what they like about daddy. And I, if I remember correctly, I think she was writing in the card or putting in something. And she got to my one little boy, uh, Luke, who at the time was about four years old. And he said this. He said, daddy is a really good fixer like God and Bob the Builder. Now, the reason that is, in our home, daddy has kind of become the fixer. When a toy breaks, daddy fixes it. What happens in our house is when a toy breaks, they know that daddy will work really, really hard to bring it back to its original design from, for optimal pleasure and enjoyment with playing with that toy. So what they'll do is they'll bring the broken toy and it gathers somewhere in our home. Currently, right now, that is in our laundry room on top of our washer and our dryer. It is there because the, the tools that every man needs, duct tape and super glue, reside right above in a cabinet. Duct tape and super glue will fix just about any toy that I have found that has come to me. And there are a few, I you need a screwdriver and a hammer, but for the most part, duct tape and super glue. So these tools, these toys will gather there. I see them. I begin to work on them and try my hardest to get them back for optimal enjoyment. There's one toy I've learned that I just cannot return to its original design. GI Joe figures. I grew up, I collected G.I. Joe's as a kid. I played with them like crazy. I had a refrigerator box. My parents got a new refrigerator, had a box, and they gave it to me, and I stored, I filled that thing with G.I. Joe stuff. Uh, I sold it when I was in high school at a yard sale, $50 for the whole box, but I did keep a few out that I passed on to my boys. As well as, so they think it's cool, they're getting cool, t- cool toys from daddy, but then they now are making these G.I. Joe toys again, so my boys have collected some. But they have this rubber band that's right where the, where the torso connects to the legs. If any of you have played with G.I. Joes, it keeps them mobile. Well, this rubber band has this tendency of snapping and breaking. When the rubber band snaps and breaks, it's almost impossible to put this thing back together right. I've tried, I've gotten little rubber bands and I try to fish them in there. So what I just, I've given up. So what I end up doing, squirt a little glue in there, stick the G.I. Joe back together and you have a very stiff G.I. Joe figure and it cannot quite regain its original form. But as I think about this, and I think about how my boys have kind of looked at me as the fixer and I think about how things break in life. I look at my life, I look at our life and I say, you know what? As we play, as we interact in life, stuff breaks. I look back over the course of my life and realize that as I've played, as I've lived life, I've been broken. I think back to first grade, probably where I I had a real realization of this. I went to a school where they still allowed spanking in the school, and it was reserved for the really major offenses. I had nine of them my first grade year. (laughs) I came to realize I was broken. There was a problem. (laughs) I think back to the ugly fights that existed between my sister and myself. I think of disobeying my parents. Uh, probably the one that sticks out the most, we, had, we lived on a farmette, three acres of land and 400 tomato plants. And at the end of the one growing season, there is this hand, there's a sickle in our garage. And my dad made it clear, never touch the sickle. Well, this one year, I thought it'd be cool to chop down the old, uh, the, the, the garden and with this sickle. So I had the sickle out and I am swinging and I am chopping and I took one swing and it went all the way through and about took my finger off. 
I'm broken (laughs) physically and I disobeyed my parents. There's a lot of pain when you're broken. More than that, I look at the times I cheated in school. I had a tendency to cheat. Even when it was 80 and 90 degrees out, I'd still wear my long sleeve shirt so I could get that little sheet up my sleeve. I probably shouldn't say any more. We have young people in the room that... I struggled in school though, and I wanted that A, so I'd do anything I could to get it, and I realized I'm broken. I think of the death of my grandfather at age 19. I was 19 years old, and my grandfather to me was like a father. He lived with us. He lived in our home from the time I was born until his death when I was 19 years old. Death is hard. It's a reality that life is broken. There's something wrong. There's hurt. There's pain. There's heartache. I think of my my teenage years and into my young adult years and, and the number of the times that sex outside of marriage and got into relationships that were not pleasing to God, not done the way he wanted, and the heartache and the pain that comes with that. I was broken. I think of depression. I think of the attempted suicide. I think of guilt and shame that categorized much of my life. And even still today, after I say, you know what? I love God. I love Jesus. I try and follow his word and live by it. But I still realize as an attempt to be a good pastor, a godly father, and a great husband, I still blow it. There's still things in my life where I look back and I realize, you know what? I am really not living in the way that I was designed to live. I'm broken. Every single one of us, this is a reality. We're broken. We are not living in the way we were designed to live. Now, this may be shocking to some of us, but we were designed, we were designed to live without sin. We were designed to experience life without death. We were not designed to live in the world in which we are living. So what I've found we do is like my little boys with their toys that they bring them to me. We try really hard to fix it. I've tried really hard over the years to fix it. I've worked hard. And guess what I've come to realize? No matter how hard I scrub, no matter how many church services I come to, no matter how many books I read, there comes to this reality that I can't fix it on my own. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I still have this thing called sin that is a part of my nature. Even after I say I am, I love Jesus. And the Bible teaches that when I do, I am a new creation and I am alive, fully alive. And I'm no longer a slave to sin is what the Bible teaches. It also teaches that I still have this war with my old self, my old nature inside of me. And I am not going to get rid of it no matter how hard I try this side of heaven. I can't fix it. So I think about this and kind of where we're headed this morning. It's going to kind of intro the, the whole series is we are not living as we were designed to live. Not a single one of us in this room is living the life fully that you were designed and and God intended for humanity to live. And no matter how hard we try, we can't fix it. Even if you're a Christian, even if you love Jesus, even if you work your tail off to live by this book, you still have the reality of sin a part of your life. So what do we do with it? That's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to work through Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. We're just going to kind of work through there. And we're really going to talk about is between now and Easter, we're going to work through these books and we're going to look at the reality of the life that we live here and now on this earth, the Christian life. We're going to talk about how we have a problem with sin 
And we're going to talk about the cool truth that Jesus came to this earth to free us. And in, in these sections of these chapters we talk about, we are told that we are no longer a slave to sin. And you can experience total and complete freedom. But yet one chapter later, that same author says of himself, I continue to do things I do not wish to do. I cannot conquer this sin inside of me. So we're going to talk about the already not yet. We're going to talk about these principles where the Bible talks about when you become a Christian, the Bible uses this cool language and says that you are glorified. It says that. It says that in Romans chapter 8. We're going to talk about you are glorified when you become a Christian. But the reality is that we all know that we, we also are not fully glorified. So we're glorified, but you're not fully glorified. This other cool picture of adoption shows up in Romans chapter 8. We're going to talk about this. It says that you, when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you are brought into the family of God. You are adopted. But then just a few verses later, the same author says that we are still waiting for our adoption to come to fruition. So it's this... this The reality of the Christian life is this already principle. We experience life. We are made new. But yet, we still wrestle with the reality of the here and the now of this world. And so much of the biblical language talks about this already. So in the coming weeks, we're just going to be working through these chapters and talk about our story the story of humanity and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be totally free of sin but yet still wrestle with sin. To kind of get this going, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. If you're not familiar with your Bible or you're new to Christianity or new to the church and the Bible's a new thing to you, Genesis is a really easy one to find. You're going to find it in the very beginning of your Bible. Or pull your smartphone out and you'll uh, navigate that well. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about this reality of how we're not living as we were designed. I'm going to talk about how sin has entered this world. Set the context, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is this picture, this magnificent picture of God creating humanity, God creating the world. And God creates this beautiful, gorgeous world. And he says to the two inhabitants of it, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, he says to him, I am giving you this world for you to steward and you to work and for you to care for. And everything in the world, this entire world is for you. It's for you to enjoy and take in and to live well. It is all yours. But there's just this one, one thing I'm asking. There are two trees in the center of the garden. The one of them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat from that tree. Everything else is fair game. Live and enjoy life. There's just this one thing you cannot do. So Adam and Eve begin to live life and they enjoy life. And along comes this one day, there's, they're out in the garden. They're together in this story. Adam and Eve are together and this snake comes along and it begins to talk to them. Now, I, right there, I've, I've heard preachers say this many times. But it's not new with me. But right there, I think if I were Eve and if I were Adam, a little antenna would go up and say, my goodness, a talking snake. This may not be the best thing to follow and to listen to, but he, they engage in this conversation. And this conversation goes, and, and the serpent says to them, we believe it's Satan kind of impersonating and embodying the serpent, says to them, hey, look at this world that's yours. Did God really say to you? And, and then Eve says, well, well, no, God said that we can eat 
of everything but this one tree. Then she adds this little statement and she adds to what God's instruction really was and says, not only can we not eat of it, we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, the serpent replies back and he begins to call question to God's character and his nature. And he says, no, come on, Eve. You don't get it. God knows full well, I believe what he's really saying to, to Adam and Eve. God knows full well that for you to touch that tree, you will become like him. And we learn that in Genesis 1 and 2. The, the, we see that in, later on in Genesis chapter 3. There is reality that is very possible. It says you're going to become like him. And God can't have that, Eve. God can't have you competing with him. He's given you this rule, this big, bad, mean God. He told you you can't eat this and, and, and it's off limits. Come on, Eve, go ahead, take it. And then he says this to Eve. He says, you're not going to die. Are you kidding me? Eve, come on. You're not going to die. So Eve looks at it, sees this fruit, and it says there in Genesis chapter 3, it says that she saw it and saw that it was pleasing and good to eat. So she grabs the fruit and she eats it. She disobeys God. She then takes it and gives it. It says in Genesis chapter 3, you say, where's Adam through all this? It says right there in the text, it says Adam was with her. So he, she just stands, she, he hears this whole conversation, and he says, here, have some. He takes it and he also eats tragedy right then and there enters humanity for all, for their forward. God comes into the picture now at this point and he walks the earth and Adam and Eve instantly know that there is a problem. It says their innocence is gone. They look at one another and they realize for the very first time, whoa, we're naked. We don't have any clothes on. So they go and they put some fig leaves together and they make these, these probably very interesting clothes and, and they begin to cover themselves up and then they go and do what sin always does. It hides. We're afraid. We're filled with shame and guilt and they have it and they go and they hide. But God in his love for us initiates a conversation. He walks to them. He finds them and he begins to ask them questions to try and draw them out. He doesn't just come and hammer them. He looks at Adam first because he's the leader. And God says, what's going on? What's happening? No, I love it. Classic, classic sin, classic tension between a husband and a wife. What's he say? It's not me. It is this horrible woman that you gave me. He shifts all the blame to her. Now, God doesn't respond to that. I find it interesting. He doesn't at that point engage that. He could have, I think, but he doesn't. And instead, he goes and moves to the woman, Eve. And he says to her, what have you done? And what does Eve do? Same thing. Oh, me? Wrong? No, I haven't sinned. I mean, I'm just hiding because I feel like hiding. But the shame and guilt is pressed. But I haven't done anything wrong. I mean, it's really this snake, this serpent. So God says, okay, I've had enough of this. And he begins to talk to us in, in verse 14 of chapter 3. And here's what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, very key, this is crucial. Cursed are you above all the livestock stock, and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So he looks down at the snake and he says, cursed are you. Now, my, my interpretation of this is this gives me good reason to hate snakes. 
I despise snakes and spiders are not real high in my list. I cannot stand snakes. I remember very well in that garden that we had growing up and we used to have all these rows of plastic. And I remember one time my dad is peeling them up at the end of the season and these four just simple garter snakes come crawling out. And I remember just freaking out, running like and screaming like a little girl and slipping and falling and landing on all these old rotten tomatoes around. I have always been petrified of snakes. So I look at this text and I say, see, we should be afraid of them. They're cursed. They aren't healthy animals. Keep them away. But in all seriousness, so there's a crucial, crucial, um, something I want to point out in this text. This is very important to me. Notice what it says. He speaks directly to the serpent, do we believe to be Satan? And he says, cursed are you. Now, why is this important? What does it mean to be cursed? See, all of us live with a curse. But this is very important to me is is understanding of the Bible. We as human beings are not cursed. We live with a curse. He says to Satan, there is, you're cursed, you're damned, there is no hope for you. I am not going to move in your direction with energy. I am not going to speak life to you. You are ruined, you are done, it is all over. Cursed are you. The thing that's interesting, he never says to Adam and Eve, you are cursed. He says there will be a curse. Crucial distinction. Why it's so crucial is because from this point forward, and you're going to see it right away in verse 15, that man is not cursed. Because what God does is God is going to now move in man's direction right away. God sees that we are broken and he is going to move in our direction to fix it. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What's being said? Many biblical scholars believe, and I'm one of them, believe that this is the very first gospel, as we come to know it, message in the Bible. God knows that we're broken. God knows that we, there's a problem. And what God does is he moves in our direction. Really, at the end of the day, what God is saying is, I'm going to fix this. I am going to put a plan together. You can't fix this. This is now a big, hairy mess, but I have a plan and I'm going to fix this. And ultimately what he says is he says, I, there, there is going to be someone born, offspring. Now, I believe what, what the foreshadowing here is of Mary and the birth of Jesus. And he says to the serpent, he says, you'll strike the heel. Now, if I cut my heel or someone hits me in the leg, will I die? The reality is I could, if I don't take care of it or get it, you know, infection sets in, sure, it could bring death. But if someone gives me a head blow, what is the likelihood of death? So he looks at him and he says, you are going to, there's this, there's this child coming. It's going to be birth and I have a plan and I'm going to put it together. You're going to come after him and you're going to do him damage, but he is ultimately going to destroy you. To give you a blow to your head. So the amazing thing is, is Satan is cursed, man is not, and God is going to come and he puts a plan together right out of the gates, right out of the chute to say, we're going to fix this. We've got a plan. He speaks life in essence to Adam and Eve. I'm going to make a way. Now, verses 16 through 19 then. Here's the curse that then is that Adam and Eve are going to struggle with. And what I want to mention to us as we kind of look at this um, is really what the curse is is what's cursed is he comes after our purpose and our unique roles. 
He basically, what it, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, our original design, how we were put together to function together as man and woman is what's broken. You're going to see this all through these verses. The very first thing we see, look at verse 16. He's going to talk to the woman. What was the woman designed to do? She was designed to be a helper and to bear children. I couldn't have kids if I wanted to. Even if I tried really, really hard in all the modern science, men are not designed to have children. Women are the nurturers and the child rears. Right out of the gate. So guess what's going to happen? To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. So right out of the gates, my wife would say, do I have a witness? Those of you who have birthed children or have been in the room, men watching the process. I mean, my wife grabbed hold of my hand when, with, with, with her through this process and she squeezed so tight. I'll never forget this. She was squeezing so tight. I thought every finger in my, every bone in this hand was just crushing. The ring here, I had to finally take off because it was just digging into my fingers. The thing that's funny is since that point, I've asked her to take my hand and squeeze and see if she could do She's never been able to duplicate that strength. There is something that happens with the female body at point of birth that is a result of sin that would not have been here had Adam and Eve not sinned. Now look at this next phrase in verse 16. Again, this, again, our roles are all jacked up. Look at what this says. He says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And then what's it say? And he will rule over you. What does that mean? I think it's interesting as you unpack this, you take the word desire. What does it mean to desire someone? In the Hebrew language, this word that is used, the only other places that it's used in the Old Testament refer to sexual desire. Now, men in the room, <laughs> I really hope and I really pray that part of the curse, I would really like to think, in other words, that my wife would desire me sexually if sin were not present in the world. So I do not think what's being said here is because sin has entered the world, the woman is now going to sexually desire her husband. I believe what the, what the intent of this is, is he's saying, if you look at the process of how we got into this mess, was Adam passive or active in his role as a leader? He was very passive. He stood by and watched his wife step into a real mess. He was very passive. He was given the role of leadership in Genesis chapter 2. And he stands passively by. And I believe what this text is really saying is from here on out, there is going to be a problem between the husband and wife. She is going to look at the husband and desire him to step up and be a man, to be a leader. She is going to then try and take it upon herself to be the man and be the leader. And when it happens in the relationship, it says the husband is going to, the the rule over is like this iron fisted, the imagery is he is going to bang. I am going to rule you. Now, as I look at the history of my own marriage, as I look at people who've sat in my office for help in marriage, as I've read books on marriage, you see this all over the place. Women nagging and pushing and trying to gain their position as leader. And then the man getting frustrated. He's passive. He's laid back. And finally, he just bang, submit to me, woman. 
I look at this and God says, hey, it's going to be broken. Your roles, your unique purpose, it is messed up from here on out. And there's going to be great struggle in marriage. So those of you who struggle in marriage, guess what? It's normal. It's a reality. You're not going to do away with it. I'd also like to just pause here and comment um, on the role of man and woman. I look at Ephesians chapter 5 comes along and I've heard the whole submission word shows up there. Women are called to submit. It is clear in the Bible right from the start that Adam, the man, was called to lead. The wife was designed to come alongside and support and be his helper in that process. As we talked a few weeks ago, the word helper actually is the same word used for God in the Psalms. He says, God is our helper. So the wife, it's not just some come along and help me get the work done. It's this companionship. It's this completion. It's, it's putting together the full image of God in marriage. But the man is the leader. And we see that the wife is to submit. But here's one of my, my passions as a pastor where I see this breakdown. We talk about Ephesians chapter 5, and we say, well, the wife should submit. But you know what's interesting to me? Before we ever see the command for the wife to submit, do you know what's actually said first? It says that we are to submit to each other. There's to be mutual submission. The very next thing that's said is that the very next thing is that the husband is to love the wife like Christ loved the church. Then we see the command for the woman to submit. One of my passions and my my things that I look at in my own marriage and I look at is I work with other marriages. One of the things that breaks my heart is as we try and talk about roles of leadership and submission, one of the things I fear is what we're really trying to do is trying to force it into Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 and not trying to take it back to Genesis chapter 2. What do I mean by that? Going back to Genesis chapter 2, the wife isn't forced to submit. The husband isn't passively laid back and then ruling and saying, you need to submit. It's a beautiful picture. If you think of it this way, think about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't God the leader, so to speak? Doesn't Jesus come to earth? And what does Jesus say in his prayer? Not my will, but whose? God's. Isn't the Holy Spirit also fully God? Aren't they all three fully God and work and function together as one? But yet there's some kind of structure within the Godhead. That to me is marriage. That is the picture of how a husband and a wife should function and work. Yes, there's order, there's hierarchy, there's structure. But it's a beautiful oneness and a coming together where it's not this, this, the wife trying to take what's not hers and then the husband hammering down and pushing back. So again, I don't want to belabor it. This isn't a message on marriage, but it it does come up here, and it is a part of the curse. If you struggle in your marriage, it is a reality of life, and we're broken. Now, if you keep looking, now we're going to get into Adam. And it says this, verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there's two things that come out here. 
First one, what is the role of man? The female body is designed to produce children. What is the man's body designed to do? Work. I mean, physiologically, this cannot be argued. That's why in the Olympics, you have females and men separated because the female's body cannot compete with the counterpart in the same sport. And I remember going to powerlifting competitions as a, in, in high school as a powerlifter, and I remember going and seeing, there, there are a few exceptions to this rule. There were some female powerlifters who grunted and moved weight around that I only dreamed of being able to do. And there are, and they, they were, I mean, they were real good looking women too, let me tell you. They were, they, but there are, there are the exceptions, but generally the man is designed physically to work. I want to make a distinction here too. Work is not a result of sin coming into our world. We were designed to work and to provide long before sin entered. The curse is simply saying work is now going to be very, very hard. And again, I think most of us know the reality of this. In our current economy, we struggle at times to put food on the table. We struggle to pay the bills. It's not easy. We work very, very hard for what we have. Work is not easy. It's a result of the curse. And the final thing he says is you're going to truly die. You're going to enter the ground as dust for which you came from. Verse 20 then says this. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now I want to skip over this verse. This is, this is crucial. What did Adam and Eve's garments that they made, what were they constructed of? Fig leaves. What are these made of? Where do you get skin? Dead animals. This is the very first time we see death show up in the Bible. And it's at the hands of God. He sheds blood. It's gruesome and it's ugly. I think he's setting the imagery for Adam and Eve. This is what your action has done. I think they see and understand now as those skins are placed on them, those leather skins that took the life of of an animal to cover them. It took blood and death to clothe them. I think God is doing it for two reasons. One is God showing the reality of death and destruction and carnage of bloodshed, it's brutal, was not designed to be. I think on top of that, he's also saying, I am going to cover you through this mess. I am going to make a way to cover you. Genesis chapter three, that that 21 there, that is a crucial verse. Now turn with me back to the book of Romans where we're gonna spend our, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here today, but this is where we're gonna, I just kind of share all that to get us into our study for the coming weeks. Romans chapter five. And if you're not familiar with your Bibles, you will find, you'll find the book of Romans roughly three quarters of the way back through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll hit the book of Acts and you'll come to this book called Romans. If you pass it, you're going to see 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Romans, I want to find chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to make one other distinction coming out of Genesis chapter 3 that I think is important. To be human is not to be sinful. This is important to me. I hear Christians a lot talk about my human sin nature 
as if it's one and the same. You were designed to be human before sin entered the world. Human is not wrong. Sin is wrong. We have a sin nature, a part of our human flesh and body present, but there will come a day when that sin nature is removed and I am perfectly human again. Does that make sense? So human nature and sin nature, why is that a big deal? I believe even when sin is removed, I'm going to have to sleep and take a rest. I believe even after sin is removed, I am still going to be human And I think sometimes what we do is we talk about this whole series about what it means to live with sin. I think sometimes we heap on ourselves guilt for being human. And what we really need to do is attack the reality of sin nature, not human nature. It's not wrong to be human. So look at me at Romans chapter 5. Start at verse 12. It says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. I want to give you one just quick, a quick kind of outline to this this section and, and Maybe look at later and we'll make a few comments on the first thing we see is sin entered through man So sin came now because of sin death entered so sin entered then death entered Now the next thing then is death spread to all because all sinned So the process is sin entered death entered through sin and death spread to all because all sin Does that make sense? It's kind of the 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 logic So sin entered, death enters, and then death spreads to all because all sin. Then the final thing that the the writer Paul really drives at is basically verses 13 and 14 say, and history proves this. Death is a reality of our existence. It's everywhere. So the history of the world proves that this this is reality. So that's kind of the the general flow um, that you kind of see kind of pump through this passage. I just want to take them real quick again. and kind of mentioned verse, look at the first one. First one, verse 12, first part of the verse. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, when Adam disobeyed God, sin entered into his life and a change took place in his, in his nature. We now have the sin nature, part of human nature. He basically went from innocence to sinfulness and it was now it's going to be passed on to his descendants. Now, when men, when man procreates and they have children, when you look at my son, Luke, and you look at pictures of Luke, or if I'd bring him up on the stage, if he were here, there is no mistaking Luke is my child. We understand fully that his physical nature, it looks a lot like me, looks a little bit like Tanya, but he is clearly our child. There's no doubt about it. When you then interact with him and listen to him talk, you're going to learn he is his daddy's child. The apple landed real close to the root of that tree good and the bad and the ugly. It's all daddy. You see it. You see it passed on. The same reality is is our physical nature and our spiritual nature, the same reality, our physical nature, our psychological makeup and our person, the same as this stuff passes on biologically, so does the sin nature pass on. It passes, it moves from Adam and and et cetera. Now, as you think about this, One of the things that's important to understand 
is that a person does not become a sinner by committing sins, but rather he commits sins because they are by nature a sinner. This is a big deal to me. Babies are born sinful. It is passed on from their daddy. From their dad, sin is passed on to the child. Have you ever wondered why babies die? My very first funeral here at this church was for a baby that lived eight hours long. Horrendous tragedy. If any of you ever walked with someone through that, it is just horrendous to get your head around. But why does a baby die? Isn't death a result of sin? The baby died because it's proof. When babies die, I think it's evidence that babies are sinners. If they were not, death would not have to enter. They wouldn't die. Because they need to grow up and prove that they're sinners. We are born sinners. David in the Old Testament says, In my mother's womb I was conceived and put together in sin. I come out a sinner. Those of you who have small children can testify to this. I mean, I love watching our little Ava Tutu right now, two years old, telling her mommy, no, no. I mean, it's crazy. Who taught her to do this? She watches daddy probably a little bit. She may watch mommy some, but overall she learned to do this on her own. Children are, we are born. So it's passed on. It's something that I cannot scrub out of myself. I cannot come out and live perfect and, and, and avoid sin. It comes to me. I sin because I'm a sinner. Now, if you look at the, look at the second part of verse 12. So sin enters through one man. One man sins and it's now part of him and it's his, he procreates. It just passes on. It passes on all throughout the generations. And death is the second thing. And death through sin. Death is separation. And one of the things I've learned about life... Is death is, it's, it's a self-evident part of life. Those of you in this room, every one of you have probably been touched by death in some capacity. Whether it's a mom, a dad, whether it's a child, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, we see death around us. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care how wealthy you are. It doesn't care what your status is or what you've accomplished. We all die. And it's a result of sin. It's one of the things I remind myself every time I go to a funeral. Even if I'm sitting at a funeral of a person who's 90 years old and they lived an incredible life and passed on an unbelievable legacy and what a gift that is. I still sit there and I still watch people cry. Because death was not an original design of our humanity. And it's a result of sin. Now, there's a couple deaths that I think... You also have to keep, this is a holistic word. There is death. First one I think is spiritual death. Sin, remember, death is separation. Spiritual death is separation from God. When I am in my sin, I am separated from God. We are not close. I think the second death you have here is physical death. Separation from one another in our bodies. And the final one I think is also you cannot leave out is eternal death. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says it's the second death when we, when we physically die. If I am not in Jesus, I will experience the second death, which is an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. So death has entered. Death has entered. 
It's a reality. Now, if you look at the, if you continue. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Now, this is not a new principle to us. We get in our world, the actions of one can impact many. We saw that happen in 9-11 as those planes hit those hit the Twin Towers, we understand that what one person did spread carnage to many. Adam's one act spread to all. Now, the other thing that's important with this, Paul, the writer of this, his primary objective is going to be to talk about what we're going to talk about next week, and is that he's basically trying to set it up to show us that Jesus coming to this earth to live and to die. His one life and one death is enough to save all. To do that, he has to help us understand that in essence, it's possible to get into this mess through one person. If it were not true that all sinned in Adam, it would be impossible to make the point that all can be made right in Christ. So Paul's going to say, hey, Jesus is the answer. But in order for us to understand that, he's got to first say, be, help us logically get, Paul's a very logical, uh, very, very logical writer. And he says, in order for Christ to save all, you've got to understand that all are lost through one man. Now then verses 13 and 14, I want to spend a lot of time on, I just want to mention, it says, but before the law was given, sin was in the world. So he says, you didn't need the law to know that you're a sinner. People died. Before the 10 commandments were given, people died. It's proof and evident that we are all sinners. Then the final phrase of the, of the section of those verses. Adam is a pattern of the one to come. I think that sums up well kind of the, those and where we're going to head next week then. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 says it this way. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Then it says, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. This is a cool verse. So you have this first Adam who comes. He's living. He's human. He sins. Because he sins, sin enters our humanity. The sin nature is a part of us. We're broken and we can't fix it. But there is the second Adam who is Jesus who's coming and he is a life-giving spirit. He has come to give you life, to bring you life. I come to a close, the one thing it's just, again, we're not living as we were designed to live. And you and I can't fix it. But there is one who clearly came to this earth to fix it for us. His name is Jesus. And we're going to spend next week, it's all, hopefully next week you hear the word Jesus at least 500 times from this stage. Jesus came to fix it. I can't fix it. I am broken. You are broken. You are a sinner. And without his help, it is, it is a dismal future. As I think about what my um, little boys said, a fixer like God and Bob the Builder. Now, I don't know about Bob. I'm not quite still trying to think what I, if I'm really crazy about being compared to Bob the Builder. Today, it would probably be Handy Manny. But I, one thing I do know is this. One of the things I loved about when my little boys said that isn't so much what it said about me, but what it said about their understanding of God. Because God is truly a fixer. He is a life giver. He knows that we're broken. He knows that we're sinful. And he says, I have come to make this right. 
He says, admit that you're broken. I think of baseball. I'm not a big baseball fan. Chris is. Chris is on staff here. He's our baseball expert on our staff. But I think about baseball. When that batter walks up to the plate, what are his chances of hitting the ball and getting on base? Do you realize a truly great baseball player only gets to first base three out of every 10 at bats? Now, when I think about that in comparison to life, that's being a loser. It's part of the reason I don't like baseball. Losers play the sport. But in all reality, when you think about it, they're walking to the bat, to the plate, a loser. Really think about that. Three out of every 10. But if you think about their perspective, when they stand in and they dig in at home plate, what is their perspective? Their perspective isn't, I'm a loser. What is their perspective? I'm going to do it. This is going to be one of the three. I'll make it four out of three this month. This is going to be it. They walk in and they step in. Failure is inevitable. As a baseball player, failure is inevitable. And the same thing is true in life. Failure is inevitable. I am a sinner. I am broken and I can't fix it. Failure is inevitable. But what happens to a lot of us, I think, is we walk around, oh, woe is me. I'm a sinner. It's all doomed. I can't. My challenge is to be like a baseball player. Step in, dig in and say, yes, it's inevitable. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, I can't fix it. But there is one who can fix it. And I'm going to step to the plate and I'm going to hit a home run today. I'm going to determine to be successful and I'm going to work at being successful and I'm going to do what it takes to be successful. Though I can't fix it, I am going to do my part and I'm going to lean into Jesus Christ who can fix this and who has come to fix this because God is a fixer. I love my little boy said it. My heart this morning is to help us see how desperate our situation really is. And that we can't do life without Jesus, who we're going to talk at great length next week. God is a fixer. We are broken. Allow him to do the work in your life that he wants to do and fix you through the person of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, as we look at the story of Adam and Eve, there is no doubt, no doubt. There are husbands sitting here who read those verses and say, yep, I see it. I struggle to provide for my family. It is hard. I struggle in my marriage. There are women sitting here who, have, who are struggling with passive leaders in their home, in their husband, who've experienced great pain in childbirth. We all sit here and we all experience and understand the reality of sin and death and carnage in our lives. God, we're broken. And no matter how hard we try to scrub and to fix it, like I've tried to fix my little boy's toys, we can't do it. I will never do away on this earth. I will never wipe out completely my sin nature. It is a part of who I am. And I pass it on to my children and they to their children. But God, may we leave here this morning with hope, especially as we look to next week and the rest of this chapter, that you didn't leave us in that place. Right out of the gates in Genesis chapter 3, you said, I've got a plan. I'm going to put this together. I'm going to seek to fix this through the person of Jesus. 
Yes, death entered through one man, Adam, but life, the life-giving spirit of the Holy Spirit has come through the person of Jesus to make us whole and alive and to live this, in this broken world. So God, may we leave here today. May we leave understanding first and foremost that we are in fact sinners. May we just understand that and get that. Some of us don't like that truth, but it is truth. It's reality. And may we also understand that that sin is not going anywhere. And so God, may we learn every single day to cling to Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. Now he's made a way to put these pieces back together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.